open the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark, shall we? Chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We are looking at the last week in the life of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem teaching in the temple courts by day, and then at night he would go out and spend the evening with his disciples and, and, and friends. But understand, this is Passover season. This is Passover season. It would have been filled to the, to the uttermost. In fact, Josephus says some 10 years after the timing of these events that we have before us that there were two and a half million people in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So when Jesus came in in the triumphal entry, there are millions of people there hearing that he is the Messiah, accepting the praise and worship that indicates that he had been accepted Messiah at least by the common man. The religious people were opposed to him from day one. Satan was coming against him long before he was born, in fact. Remember Herod was trying to kill off the babies in Bethlehem? And here in, in chapter 12, you find these so-called religious guys seem just bent on drawing Jesus into some kind of nasty thing that they can impugn him with before the Roman authorities. Just, just anything at all. Their motive is nothing but jealousy and envy and pride, arrogance and godlessness. But get this, but they were very religious. They went to church. They dumped the big checks in the offering plate, and everybody thought, ooh, ah, look at how holy they are. When, in fact, they had nothing but murder in their hearts. They had murder in their hearts. Jesus is going to address some of these issues that we have before us here. Uh, they had tried to trap him in this issue of taxes. Well, why don't you tell us if it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was very unpopular with the people. And yet, if Jesus said, don't pay taxes, then they could bring charges by the Roman government. They sought to trap him. They're not in don't you hate it when people ask you a question, but they don't want, they don't want an answer? They're here to tell you something, and you better believe the way they do, or they're just going to drill you into the dirt. Or people that try to incriminate you or tie you up in a word game. We get those calls frequently here at church. Whether it's Sabbath worshipers, oh, you're going to hell if you don't worship on the Sabbath. Or, or anti-Trinitarians that say, oh, so you believe in three gods. No, that's not what we believe. And then they go off and they start yelling and screaming. They're not asking questions. They're wanting to argue, and they always want to prove their point. They are never going to say, well, whatever you believe, if there's any differences between you and I, God will make it plain to us. They never say that. They just want to argue more. What I love about Jesus, so filled with the Spirit of God that he had the perfect comeback every time. Has this ever happened to you where somebody's in your face, and then 10 minutes later, it dawns on you the perfect thing you should have said? I'm always about that far behind eight ball. Boy, I should have thought of that at the time. You know, I'm not sure that would have advanced God's purposes. But <clears throat> So they're trying to do the same thing then. So the Pharisees and the Herodians had tried to trap him with paying taxes. And then the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection or anything but the first five books of Moses, they tried to trap him on, hey, this gal had a husband, and he died, didn't have any kids. Another guy married her, he, he died, didn't have any kids. This continues through seven brothers. So at the marriage, at the resurrection, <laughs> whose husband's hers? They thought they had an iron. They're not interested in learning about marriage in, after the resurrection. They're just trying to trap Jesus and make him look foolish. And boy, he answered them. 
in such a way that it shut them up instantly. What you have in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 12 appears to be a legitimate question. It, it seems like this teacher of the law, that's why they are called lawyers, they were the scribes whose job it was was to handwrite copies once an old uh, piece of vellum or leather or papyrus got old. They would make the new copies. And so because they were in the law all the time, these scribes were called lawyers. This is their background. And it seems like this guy legitimately wants Jesus to educate him. He doesn't come to Jesus saying, I've formed an opinion and I'm going to sell you on it. That's arrogant. That's prideful. People do it all the time. But the Bible says have nothing to do with vain and foolish arguments. If they want to ask me a legitimate question, I'll spend all day with them. But usually we get these phone calls from so-called academics just wanting to argue. And you just got to say, look, I love you in Jesus' name, but I'm commanded in Scripture not to argue with you, so I'm sorry. We'll have to terminate this conversation. Click! You're more godly than I am, I'm sure, in how you handle it. But sometimes, because, and, and then again, 10 minutes later, oh, I should have said that. Ooh, I you know, it wouldn't matter to some people what you say. It's their way or the highway. They don't want to talk. They want to indoctrinate you. They don't care what your beliefs are. Increasingly, as Christians are in the minority, we're going to need to circle the wagons. And understand the world is not friendly towards the causes of Christ. They want to argue. They want to indoctrinate you. What do you think is going on in the schools with your children? They don't want you to know what they're doing to your children. That is the scariest thing in the world to me. And most parents are going, well, okay, I guess. You're the one with the degree in, in history or science or education. I guess you know what's best. Maybe not. Maybe they just want to indoctrinate you into seeing that their cause is what we should get behind, not God's. The author behind any movement that takes us further away from God is Satan. You and I need to see things with spiritual glasses on and understand what the battle is all about. The enemy is not your school board. The enemy is not your next-door neighbor who's a dedicated pagan and has clouds of dope coming out of his garage door every time he opens it up. That's not your enemy. Satan is. And he works in and on and through people just as God's Holy Spirit works on in, on, and through the people of God. But understand this is a spiritual contest between the forces of light and darkness. Pray for those people. They need Jesus. It's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue ultimately. And that's what we need to stand behind. This guy comes to him with a, a very different kind of heart and attitude, and it is crystal clear in the original language how he comes, and it is with a heart of meekness. It's a legitimate question. He has heard Jesus silence his critics about these various issues, but this is a scribe whose job it is is to copy the law. He's a lawyer. He knows the, the first five books of Moses, but like the back of his hand. In fact, a Pharisee typically in the first century could quote the first five books of the Bible from memory. When's the last time you tried to memorize the book of Deuteronomy? 
or Leviticus or get five of those books? And people esteem those guys to be godly. No, they're just scholars. They don't even know God in some cases. This one seems to sense in his spirit that while I know the law, I feel estranged from God. We've got so many rules, so many regulations. We've got the Torah, which is the law. We've got the Talmud, which was all of the rabbinic interpretations down through the ages. And these guys were expected to know them all. And the guy was probably buried under the weight of his library and said, this is a burden. Religion always is. Religion is what you can do for God to earn his approval. Christianity is what God's already done for each one of us in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all you've got to say is, I need you. Surrender to him. Confession of sin and repentance brings us into a right relationship with the God who created the entire universe over our heads and everything that is and wherever will be. The commandment. In verse 28, one of the teachers of the law, this lawyer, came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He'd shut them up. This scribe is impressed by that. He's impressed with Jesus' knowledge of Scripture. There's something different about this fisherman named Jesus that he doesn't see in his religious cronies. He asked Jesus then, of all of these burdensome commandments, of all of these rabbinic interpretations, of all of the opinions of the scholars, the mission of the Gemara, oh, good grief, Lord Jesus, can you simplify this for me? What's the most important commandment? Now, many people, many Jews would have said, well, the Ten Commandments are the embodiment of the law. That's not what Jesus says. It's a sincere question, finally. An insincere question all about taxes and marriage, all they want to do is argue, have nothing to do with vain and foolish arguments. They're trying to trap Jesus, the Herodians, the Pharisees. But this guy has a, an honest question of all of the commandments, Jesus What's the most important? I mean, I can't memorize the entire encyclopedia set of Jewish regulations. Can you simplify this for me? Can Jesus simplify this for you this morning? People say, well, how do I get close to God? Pastor, do I need a, a library that fills the walls of my house? No. Well, Pastor, do I have to just go and sell all that I have and go on the mission field for 20 years and eat nothing but dirt and bugs? Well, the government says yes. You should eat bugs. Learn to eat bugs, you know, because we're, so we're not such a drain on the food supplies, really. The only bugs I'll eat are those little squirmy ones called gummy bears. Those will work for me. The world is out there to tell you all sorts of things that you have to do to earn God's approval. But this is a legitimate question. Who had been impressed with Jesus' answers up to this point? The most Important one, answered Jesus. Here's where your highlighter comes in handy. If you've ever wanted to know this entire book whose pages number in the thousands, in fact, this morning, we are on page 1,564. I assume you've memorized everything up to now. <laughs> have you ever said in your heart and mind, Pastor Jim, of all that we have read so far, could you tell me what's the really most important thing I need to latch on to? That's what Jesus is answering here. 
What's the most important thing? I want to know that because if this is the most important thing in the mind of the Son of God, I want to be sure to do that one. I may mess up on the other ones. I may not keep the rabbinic interpretations and their arguments and high-sounding theology. I, I may not know the original languages and can't de- delve into it with a front-end loader or an excavator, but I want to know what's, what's this boiled down to. What, what is the most important thing? And what Jesus does is quotes a, a passage of Scripture that this scribe, this lawyer, had written down dozens and dozens and dozens of times. In fact, it was the clarion call of all Jews every time they ever came together for one of their their festivals. It is called the Shema. Shema. S-H apostrophe M-A. Shema. Can you say Shema? It's not Shema. Be a good Hebrew, impress your friends. Do you know the Shema? Teacher of the law came. This is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because of that, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And while Jesus had simplified the entire Bible for this guy, He also just told him that what is most important to God is what you cannot do in the power of your flesh. You cannot fulfill these two simple commands in the power of your own flesh. It is a work of God's Holy Spirit upon those that have surrendered their lives to him who have been filled with God's Holy Spirit. They can do that. What is difficult to see in this passage, look at verse 29, as he quotes accurately from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint abbreviated LXX in Roman numerals, Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Now the Greek here has kurios, which means Lord in Koine Greek. It was the most popular title of Jesus. He is Lord, that's to be sure. But that's not what it says in the ancient Hebrew. And here's why. The Koine Greek does not have a J or a V in its alphabet. They can't say Yahweh. They don't have it. They don't have a W in the Greek alphabet. They can't say that. So they had to interpret this Lord. But it is not accurate. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God. God there is the, is the term theos. It's where we get the word theology, the study of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, kurios, is one. Okay? What are we supposed to do in light of that fact? Love them with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Keep a finger here, but I want you to flip over to Psalm. Well, yeah, flip over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this becomes very important in the original language, and it is one of the very few places that is this important. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is what Jesus was quoting. He was quoting it out of the Greek version, though, because there are alphabetic devices the Greeks don't have that the Hebrews did. And what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, are you there yet? Hold up your hand if you're there yet. Oh, you guys are so smart. How many of you needed to use cheater tabs? Come on. 
<laughs> Me too. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord. Okay, stop there. Do you notice that Lord in your version, in all versions in this room, is all in capital letters? L-O-R-D. That's why in the Greek version of this, they translated that kurios. That's the only word they had for Lord. Here's the problem. It's in capitals in your Bible because in the Hebrew language, it is Y-H-W-H. And you say, well, how do I pronounce that, Pastor Jim? There's no vowels in between there. They didn't need vowels. That was a later addition way on down the road from the Hebrew timing of Deuteronomy chapter 6. His name is Yahweh. He is the only God there is. So anytime you see Lord all in capital letters in the Old Testament, scratch it out, put in Y-H-W-H because that is an accurate translation. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. It's an accurate quote. Now, where it says Yahweh is one, there in verse 4, understand that in the Hebrew, there are two different words for one. There is a compound unity, ikad, like we are one congregation. Now, there are a plurality of people here, but if I want to refer to you in total, I would say one congregation, and I would use that word Ikad, we are one congregation. I could say of my hand, okay, this is my hand. Now, it is true that there are four fingers and one thumb, but only one hand. Would you agree? That was common in the Hebrew language. We are one congregation. This is one hand. That's the term that's used in Deuteronomy 6.4. Why is that important? Because it implies the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is within that trinity, there are three persons in one Godhead. I don't have all of that figured out. Nobody does. Tertullian tried to 400 years after Jesus lived, but I think that was a very limited attempt at well. There's a different word for one. Yaqid is a singular one. This is one index finger. This is my one wife. You better say that of anybody you're married to. This is my one wife. There are no others. There's no plurality that we're talking here. It's an absolute and total oneness. That's not the word that the Hebrews used in Deuteronomy 6.4. They could have. They didn't. If they'd have used yakid instead, that absolute oneness, there'd be no need for the Trinity or Jesus being the Son of God. So what you have even the Shema, which they held, the Jews held in highest regard, you have the implication of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Mark chapter 12. That's why it's important as Jesus answers this lawyer. Of all of the commandments, what's most important? Understand that Yahweh is the God that we serve, and Yahweh is one. But in that compound unity of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, what are we supposed to do? Verse 30, love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart. Are you convicted yet? Verse 
I have never met anyone that could honestly say, I love Yahweh my God with all of my heart. Why is that a difficult thing to do? Life gets in the way. We have hobbies. We have sports. We have things that make demands on our time. And God seems to take second place to all of these other priorities as we give in to the tyranny of the urgent. Oh, I'm too busy to read my Bible, Pastor Jim. I I just don't have time for prayer. I I can just barely go to church on Sunday morning. You and I have exactly the same amount of time, 24 hours in a given day, that Jesus had to completely do the will of God. There are no excuses. I want to love God, with all of my heart and with all of my soul, everything that is within me, and with all of my mind and with all of my strength. But as soon as I read that I'm convicted, I don't do that. But I want to. I want to with all of my heart. What is necessary for the Holy Spirit of God as I am in His Word and in prayer convicting me of the things in my life that I need to let go of? that take that time away from me so I can read God's Word, so I can spend some time in prayer, so I can enjoy the fellowship of the church. But then, Pastor Jim, you'd be asking me to to give up, you know, my favorite TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you something? How much TV Jesus watch? How much time Jesus spend on Facebook? Instagram, well, certainly Twitter. Hmm. TikTok? Maybe Jesus was in fact Chinese. No, I don't think so. All of those things seem so important to the younger generation that's out there today. That is their life. That's the axis around which their entire life circles. Jesus says God needs to be that axis around which everything in your life revolves. A different priority, a different mindset. I don't know what robs you of your time with the Lord today, but I really encourage you, after you leave this place, to ask God to search your heart. And if there is anything that is keeping you from loving Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength, delete it. We don't do that. We're not trained. We're not training ourselves in righteousness. It is so easy to get in the lazy boy recliner and tilt back and turn on the news and just snooze. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of this life. You know, you're the mother of a family of six, and you're running between six different games and tryouts with your children. You're frazzled and you're hassled. All of the things that we deem as so essential and important today, Jesus never engaged in. And it's weren't, it wasn't because they didn't have sports back then. They did. 
They had the entertainments. They had the baths. They had the theaters. They had the hippodromes where they did the horse races. They had all of those secular distractions. And Jesus seemed to be a man on a mission. Knowing that he had a limited amount of time, things were serious for Jesus. And what he's telling his scribe is, can I tell you, only 40 years from now, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed by the Romans, and Jewish blood is going to run through its streets like rivers. Suppose I were to be able to tell you the same thing. Well, I can. Time is short. Well, how do you know, Pastor Jim? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Revelation chapter 22, in my quiet time this morning, Jesus said, Behold, I come soon. I'm coming quickly. He says it three times. So that you and I might believe that the hour is near. So when are we going to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? I encourage you to make that a priority decision today. I know it's hurtful to say, Lord, whatever's in my life that's not pleasing to you or simply serves as a secular distraction, take away from me. I know that takes a lot of guts to do that because what you're asking Jesus to do is, Lord Jesus, I'm the carrot, take the carrot peeler to me. Whatever's got to go, take this off, take that off, take this off. It's like we're a diamond in the rough. We come to Jesus this big around, but we're encrusted with dirt and rocks and all sorts of impurity. And what Jesus is doing is simply knocking off the stuff that he can't use for his glory and your benefit. That's what Jesus is doing. Every traditional diamond cut has 144 facets. For the Christian, every one of them reflects the glory of God. But that's what he's doing in your life. It's like you and I are raw and oh-so-precious diamonds, and what he's doing is faceting. This and that. This has to go. That has to go. And sometimes the jeweler's chisel and hammer can be a little unsettling. He asks us to give up things that have been a part of our life forever. You know that we need to give up the sins, and yet there is so much pornography out there today. There are so many people trying to get you to deviate from God's perfect ideal, to lie, to cheat, to steal, because, you know, hey, everybody's doing it. No, not everybody is doing it. The children of God that are chasing after his heart avoid those kind of things. And I'm simply asking, let Jesus be Lord of all. Be Lord of all. <clears throat> this is the most important commandment. Love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength because everything else flows out of that. And without that, nothing else happens that's good in your life. If God is not the center of everything, then there is room for improvement in our walk with Him. Everything else flows out of that central relationship with Him. That, that's the pivot upon which all of our lives spin. It is God. Love Him. How do I love Him? By seeking Him, by praying, by praising and worshiping Him, just like we did so excellently this morning. Love God supremely. Don't love anything else as supremely as you love God. He doesn't want to be the first priority amongst men in your life, can I tell you? He wants to be your only priority. Everything else he'll take care of. Everything else, I guarantee you this. Try it for a week. Come back next Sunday and say, you know, I tried to give him Jesus all my heart. It just didn't work. Yeah, I want to hear that one. I want to hear that one right out of your lips. God's a liar and he doesn't keep his word. You seek him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength from now till next Sunday. 
And it's going to be a different worship service. <laughs> we can raise the roof off this place, man. And God will take a can opener and peel back the roof and show us his glory in his face and say, with you I am well pleased. But it starts with, it starts with, with this one, it's just one commandment. I'm not asking you to memorize the Old Testament. I'm just asking you to do one thing. One thing. If there is anything else that is the axis of my life, this world gets wobbly pretty quick. And that's why Jesus said this is first, but then the second is like it. Verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't love God first, you're never going to love the Cretans that are out there. That ain't going to happen. That's just not going to happen. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? We want to exclude everybody that we don't like. I, should, I don't have to love them, do I? Yeah. But you can't. You can't unless you love God first. Here's why. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. The fruit, that's singular in Galatians chapter 5. The one fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, and everything else flows out of that. So that's what happens. You come to God, you make him the very central focus of your life, and his things start changing. He takes that carrot peeler to you, and the hammer and the jeweler's chisel come out, and he's chipping off things so you can make, you'll be a beautiful diamond. And once he has you and all of you, he's going to fill you with his Holy Spirit. He's going to fill you up like a half-empty cup. Just fill it up to overflowing with living water. Then, and only then, can you love your neighbor. Otherwise, you just write them off. <clears throat> Let me illustrate the example. Ah, living water. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of worth, nothing that carries eternal value. It's the most important commandment, to love him supremely. Here's why, because the world tends to love itself. Their world centers around them, their likes, their dislikes, their circle of friends, what they want to do with their lives. I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny. The world's tendency is to love itself above all else. People leave self-centered lives, don't they? In a nutshell, leave, here's the problem, it leaves them empty, it leaves them hungry, it leaves them unsatisfied and unfulfilled. But the Bible tells us what the unfulfilled Life is that self-centered. It not only is unfulfilled. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes? David's son Solomon wrote that book at the end of his life. And you know what he said? Can I paraphrase this? I've lived my entire life for self-indulgence. I've slept with 10,000 chicks. I have done drugs like you can't imagine. I have been drunk. I've been foolish. I've traveled. I've studied the sciences and mathematics, and I've tried everything in the world. And he says, you know what it all is? Vanity. It's empty. It doesn't fulfill. That's the lie of Satan. Man, if you go to this, then you'll be fulfilled. If you try that, then, oh, that's the happiness you're looking for, dude. The self-centered life is is defined by emptiness and frustration. And the book of Ecclesiastes will tell you all about that, a classic example of the guy who lived a self-centered life like nobody ever did and ended up with that plaintive cry at the end of his life. It's all vanity. 
It's empty. It's void. There's nothing there. It offers no happiness. It's empty, empty, empty. Everything is vain. Everything in life is frustrating. And he did it all. He had it all. He was a billionaire that would make Bill Gates blush for crying out loud. Every Iraqi or Saudi prince, he had more money than all of them put together. Didn't satisfy. Yet people chase after those things today. All because his world revolved around himself, his own self-indulgence, what he wanted to do in his flesh. And you'll find that is unfulfilling. And he ended up as a bitter cynic. You've known people like that. People that the self-serving life, boy, as, as they get older, they seem to get more bitter, more angry, more resentful. Have you noticed that? Why is it that when we get older, we get crotchetier? That's not a godly quality. But somehow or other, we, that's okay. I'm old. I deserve it. No, you don't. We end up a bitter cynic because our lives have revolved around something else other than God. I don't want to die an old, bitter man. It's not the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. My kids joke with me and say, well, okay, we won't put on your tombstone an old, bitter man and a cynic. Instead, we'll put he loved hot dogs. <laughs> I'm trying to get them to change their minds and say, can I tell you, sons and daughters, I love God more than hot dogs. The hot dog lover in you probably says that's blasphemy, but i got to tell you, I've read this passage of Scripture, and if I don't make God priority one, my life is a belly flop. I don't want to do that. Have you ever done a belly flop in a pool, and everybody looks at you, and everybody's snickering and laughing, and you wind up with this big red circle on your chest? I'm not going to end up my life with a belly flop circle on my chest, I'm telling you. I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I want, to, I want to do this. At its core, the Bible is simplicity personified. Love God. Love each other. Okay, did you get that? Love God. Say, love God. Love each other. That's all there is to it. But it's mission impossible in the flesh. I can't work this up. There's some people out there, you go, I, I couldn't love that guy if you put a gun to my head. That's right. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the difference. It's not self-effort that I'm advocating. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, they had that. They tried that. And this poor guy comes up and says, I'm coming up empty. I've been copying the Word of God my whole life, man. Religion doesn't satisfy. Being the most famous guy sitting in the, in the temple or in the synagogue, it, it doesn't matter. Well, verse 32, as Jesus gave him this, these two commandments, verse 32, well, teacher, the man replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. Did you catch that? There's only one God. There's not another one. There is not a plurality of gods, and you have the choice of which one you will believe in this world. Buddha's not God. Muhammad's not God. The Hindu deities are not deities. They're statues with way too many arms, and they are evil. Those that worship them are worshiping, in fact, demons. There is one God, and his name is Yahweh. 
It was the Jewish nation's job to tell the whole world that. It's our job. So tell them out there, the people out there, there's only one God. When they say worship, when you tell them worship God, they say, well, what God? There's only one. This, this makes this supremely simple. There's only one. He only had one son. His name was Jesus. His son's name wasn't Buddha. It wasn't Muhammad. It wasn't Confucius. Let's simplify this for the world out there. Then Jesus goes on. Well said, verse 32, this scribe tells Jesus, to love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength, to love your neighbors as yourself, is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Hush of my mouth. This guy just had a Holy Spirit revelation. This is a guy that has been offering burnt offerings and sacrifices his whole life. And now it dawns on him, there's something more important than what I can give God. It's what he can give to me, which is unconditional love, which is a life that's turned around. He can give me forgiveness. To love this God that loves us so supremely is better than all of the sacrifices that we could ever offer up. That's a monumental saying that he just issued. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow. This guy thought he was in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you're close. Here's why he said that. Because if you put God number one, he's going to lay on your heart that in fact I'm his son and I'm the Messiah. And you'll place your faith, trust, hope in me instead of those burnt offerings and sacrifices as the way to get into heaven. But until then, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're close. There's a revelation that you're beginning to understand. You just need to make that additional step of personal commitment. Yeah. Here's where it gets pointed. You are the scribe. You need to know that the kingdom of God is not entered into by self-denial, fasting, or sacrifices, or what you could give to God. It's simply receiving from God that, it, that which he's already given us, Jesus Christ, his son, and the offer of forgiveness of sin in him. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, why? Why? All of the things that you've tried up to this point, you know don't satisfy and anybody in this room that does know Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, can tell you I wasn't satisfied until I found Christ. He's everything to me. My whole world revolves around him now. God is the center of my life. No, he is my life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This guy is so close. He is so close. While Jesus was teaching, verse 35, in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law uh, say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And I wanted to look at that one too. That's it. That's, he's declaring here a passage out of Psalm 110 in verse 1, where it literally says, if I can relay the Hebrew to you accurately, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, the father is addressing the son. And David acknowledges this son that God is referring to, the son of God, is in fact my Lord. 
See, if David was simply referring there to his son Solomon in that patriarchal day and age, no Jewish father would have ever declared his son to be Lord. Oh, no, 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 that didn't happen. That just did not happen. But what David is saying is, the Son of God is my Lord. And that's, that's what's going to stop these guys in his tracks. Verse 37, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The rabbis knew that the Messiah had to be the son of David. But Jesus says, my turn to ask a question now. Try this one on for size. Psalm 110, which they all took to be a messianic psalm referring to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is not asking a question just to shut him up or humiliate him. He's asking him to think this through. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God that David referred to. Why don't you ask me where I was born? You think I was born in Nazareth. In fact, I was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. You've never asked me about my lineage, my lineage or my genealogy, but through my mom and my dad, they go, both go back through David. I am the heir of David's throne. I am the king of Israel, the Messiah. And the large crowd listened to him with delight. I'm, they were delighted because they, nobody else could shut up these religious leaders. And Jesus just trumped them. They got nothing. They got no comeback at all. Don't you wish that could happen every time you have some kind of engagement with some pernicious person? That one thing that'll just got them, shut them up forever. Yeah, Jesus had different motives than you and I tend to sometimes. And while he taught, Jesus said, verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in their long flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at all the banquets. <clears throat> what scares me is I hear pastors say that from time to time. Oh, you know, pastor, I can't even go to Walmart everywhere because everybody there recognizes me. <laughs> I'm so stinking popular. I'm so cool. I go here and I go there and I get invited to all of these engagements. They're Pharisees. Their life is centered around themselves instead of the living God. It's all about them. Don't... The kind of conversations that I dislike most of all is when the conversation is about the individual. And go, they'll go on for 30 minutes all about themselves. Never mention God or Jesus Christ one time. In a, it shouldn't be that way for us Christians. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will indeed be punished most severely. Boy, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I just want to stay in touch with Jesus Christ on all occasions, be filled with his Holy Spirit. I, I don't want to ever draw attention to myself. I don't want a ministry named jamesaetheridge.com. I, I, I don't know. It just sounds crass to me. I don't want my fingerprints on anything God does in his body, in his church. I don't want my name. I'm not in this for recognition. Worship the Lord. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. <clears throat> Many rich people threw in large amounts of money, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, literally two lepta. It was the smallest Roman coinage known in circulation, worth only a fraction of a penny, and calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Wow. 
They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty and in everything, she put in everything, all that she had to, to live on. Interesting view the Pharisees had of widows. They saw them as a bit under the curse of God. Lesser people, oh, they felt the obligation to support them from time to time, throw them a penny when they, these poor widows would have to humiliate themselves and sit on a, a sidewalk and beg money. There was no Social Security or governmental bailout programs. And he, she puts in her meager resources, these two lepta. A lepta was one hundredth of a denarius, which was a day's wage uh, for the average Roman soldier. So today it would be like she threw in a buck or two. It's not the amount that she threw in. She threw in all that she had. I'm convicted once again because I have never done that. And I doubt if there is anyone in this room that has done that. We read these stories, but it makes, they make us feel uncomfortable. Why did she do that? That's irresponsible, some of you might be thinking. She did that because she obeyed the first commandment. You love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything else will turn out fine. She was that woman. She was not more attached to her money than she was her God. And so she knew that she could trust because of her faith in the living God. She knew, I can put in everything and God will take care of me. I don't know how, where, when, or what. In the court of the women, there were 13 of these very large trumpet-shaped collection boxes. They were shaped like inverted trumpets so the worshipers could give of their offerings. But what Jesus is saying is percentage-wise, she gave more than everybody else combined. Because there ain't nobody that put in that offering plate that day all that they had to live on. I have asked myself the question, if God asked me to do that, would I have enough faith to empty out my bank account and give it to God? It's an uncomfortable question, and I apologize because that is not my intent. My intent is to tell you that it is only possible to do that because God was her world. He was the axis around which her world revolved. And she was in a desperate place and in her desperation. She says, God, this is all I got. I give it to you. She had more faith than any of us because there is none of us that's actually done that. I'm not saying that the Lord is asking you to do that. But if he did, could you? Do you have enough faith to say, I believe with all my heart that God would, would and could take care of me? I don't know that he asks this of many people. Jesus' point was that her gift, though small, it was more than all of the others gave because she gave out of her poverty. The rest of us give out of a fairly wealthy amount of money compared to the average third-person world. Her faith went way beyond 10%, which is what the tithe was in Jewish circles and still is today. She gave it all. But isn't that really the truest cost of discipleship? 
where God says, give me everything. I mean, think about it this way. Of all that we have, isn't it a gift from God? Whether it's houses or cars or wives or children or grandchildren or possessions, everything that I have ultimately belongs to God. Remember what Job said when God tested him and took it all away? He said, the Lord gives, Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he had nothing. It's not that he contributed 10% regularly, although I know he did. He was a faithful, faithful Old Testament servant of God. But he realized everything he had belonged to God. So if God took it all away in a second, he could say, oh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Hmm. That's faith that is unparalleled. Faith that is unparalleled. I want to be like that. I don't know what your goal in life is. For a lot of people in the world, it's just to be wealthy. What's the definition of wealthy? More than whatever you have, even if it be billions of dollars. That's how the world defines wealth. It's never enough. Whatever they have, it, it's never enough. If they don't have God, there is this chasing after the wind because they're, they're never fulfilled. doesn't matter how many billions of dollars they have. There's this emptiness that only God can fill. If I give God everything and will love Him with all of my heart, mind, and soul and strength, then I can walk through life with my head held high because He's got me. He's got me. Every day He gives me food and clothing and shelter. Every day He answers my prayers. Every day He carries my children. He blesses my grandchildren. Every day I can cast all of my cares upon Him who cares so much for me. That's faith. That's what God wants you to do. And He tests you in that regularly, doesn't He? The latest sickness you had, the latest diagnosis that you didn't agree with, the, the financial setbacks, the relationships that sour. And we just, after a while, said, boy, I just want to check out. Lord, this world is a, is a merry-go-round, and I'd just like you to stop it for half a second and let me off. What is the problem? A lack of faith. It's like that one guy prayed we read about already in the Gospel of Mark that said, Lord, I have faith. Increase my faith. I've got a little faith, Lord. But as I look at this chapter, I'm convicted of how little my faith actually is. I want more faith. I want to be able to do what these people in this chapter did. They humbly came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said things that, that challenged the very foundation of their lives. This is not a feel-good sermon where you walk out here as unchanged as you walked in. This is a sermon where I think the Holy Spirit just wants to get a hold of us and, and remind us how much He loves us. But we, take, so we have such a tight grip on the things of this world and our hobbies and our things, our possession, our money, our stuff, that we're afraid to let go and let God. Just chill. Because everything you have has come from His gracious hand. It's all His. It's all his. Corey Ten Boom, a survivor of the Holocaust in World War II, a Dutch lady whose family put their own lives at risk hiding Jews under Nazi Germany. She one time told my pastor, Chuck Smith, she said on her deathbed, she said, Chuck, I've always tried to keep a loose grip on everything that I have because that way, it doesn't hurt so much when he pries my fingers off of them. 
You're holding too tightly to something? Money? Possessions? Education? I mean, there's a thousand false gods out there that we chase after thinking, well, if I just have that, if just if somebody told me, you know, the education is the key to life, get your education, and you'll never be poor. Well, that person never went to seminary and became a pastor, I'll tell you. My mom said, Oy vey, Jimmy, you could have been a doctor. What she's saying is you could have been rich and given me money. <laughs> Instead, you became a pastor and you could barely support yourself. And you're working outside the church. It's okay. Heaven's reward is great for those that trust in the living God. I, I, I don't care about the stuff of this world anymore. It's not important to me. I think, I think I've seen one by one, he takes away from me the things that I once thought were entertaining, were important. As I get older, I see those things as vanity. Vanity. Chasing after the wind. Maybe. You just want to talk to God sometime this week and say, Lord, is there something really that's kind of hindering my walk? Am I hanging on too tight to something that gets in the way between you and me? I just want you to take that away from my. Oh, he is so gentle. He is so kind, so patient, so, so long-suffering. But I think when people hold back things from God, what they forfeit is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. If you're deeply invested in the things of the world, then you're always going to be fearful of what might happen to those things in the world. People ask me, have you ever played the stock market? Well, I think that's just right up there with throwing the dice at Vegas. What's the difference? We're gambling that I'll make money off of this stock or in this program or not. It's a modern-day form of gambling. I'm, I'm not in, invested in that. I'm not smart enough to, to do that, I don't think. But there's a lot of different distractions in this world that dangle over us the promise of wealth in this world when Jesus said your eternal reward waits for you and it's stored in heaven. It's not on earth. You know, on, this, on this plane of existence, he'll give us food, clothing, and shelter. Didn't Jesus say that? Ask and seek and knock. Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of even before you ask. But seek first. What? The kingdom of God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Make God priority one. Everything else will fall right into place. Don't worry. Don't fret. I mean, maybe we ought to revisit the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. Maybe you want to do that maybe this week if you're uh, just wanting for a good place to read. The Sermon on the Mount sets a high bar. Uh, for the children of God and what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, I'm just going to wrap up this chapter with this. Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. That's what he was trying to prove to these religious leaders. But a self-centered life or a life that, uh, that doesn't revolve around God is an unfulfilling life ultimately. Let your world revolve around God. Let, let him be the very center of your life, the, the axis about which your whole existence uh, turns. Because if you don't, you're going to die sarcastic and bitter, unhappy and unfulfilled. And then everything that you had worked so hard in this life to acquire will go to somebody else. I mean, have you noticed that nobody goes to a funeral? They don't put a casket in the ground with a U-Haul trailer tied behind it. You can't take your stuff with you. Some of us think we can. You ever see the Cadillac Ranch in Texas? Started out by some, some guy saying, well, I'm not giving my Cadillac to nobody else when I die. I want it buried with me. Well, the Cadillac Ranch in Texas is filled with all sorts of Cadillacs. They're still there, and the rest of those guys, I don't know where they're at, but they are not with their Cadillac, I'm here to tell you. Self-centered life, it'll turn you into a cynic and a critic 
It'll show you the emptiness of this, this, this life. What do we give God? He doesn't need our stuff. What he really wants is your heart. And all of your heart. There's room in this equation for you to go to work and enjoy the fruit of your labor, but understand this, what you do for a living, that's not tied to your spiritual gifts or how God wants to use you necessarily. It may not be your calling in life. It's just what you do to keep beans and weenies on the table. What is your life? What is your life? And most men will answer, well, here's what I do for a living. That's not what I asked you. Who is your life? What is your life? It may be your occupation. It may be your maybe a thousand other things. But what is your life? The man or woman of God says, God is my life. God is my life, and now all that he has given me is his. He doesn't need our stuff. He wants my heart. So what does it cost us? It costs this widow lady everything that she had. Uh, but I, I look at her heart compared to the Pharisee's heart, the self-righteous, you know. I want the heart of a woman that trusts God with everything that I have. People ask me, well, Pastor Jim, do you have any money? Sure. Do I like to give to people on uh, the street corners? Yeah. I, I tell them, you can have, well, this guitar pick or, or that one or that one or you know, maybe this guitar pick or maybe that one or this one or that one. I tend to drop a lot of guitar picks. <laughs> what else do you have? Where's your, where's your wealth, Pastor Jim? Well, I picked this one up off of my driveway yesterday. It's a penny. It's a lepta. It's a widow's mite. I'll gladly give this to any of you. This is another one. Whose inscription is on that denarius-sized coin then made of pure silver today made of copper and God only knows what's underneath, some measure of zinc or cheap alloy? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give unto God what is God's. But then I have some true wealth here. I have a dime. <laughs> FDR's portrait is on there. Caesar's was on that denarius that Jesus was talking about. He can have it too. I look at the only quarter I've ever possessed. <laughs> and I see on there a portrait of George Washington. But the most important part is not whose face is on it, though I highly admire George Washington, but what is written below that. In God we trust. In God we trust. The Lord can have everything of mine. He can have houses, cars, kids, because they're all blessings from Him. And I understand that. So I hold very lightly to that cup because I don't want it to hurt when He pries my fingers off of my possessions. Does that just make sense? Live for God. Everything else will turn out just fine. But live for God. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? As the praise band, oh, <laughs> that's me, <laughs> comes up. Lord of heaven and earth, we have need most of all of you. God who has blessed us with eternal life, who has filled us with his Holy Spirit, shed the blood of his own son so that we might be saved and walk with you and dwell with you forever. Oh, I can't wait for that day to arrive, Lord. What a glorious day that will be. But until then, there is much work to be done. There are many lessons 
for me to learn. I want to grow in my faith, and I don't want to be easily distracted by the things of this world. I love you with all of my heart, Lord. You are indeed the axis upon which my life revolves. And I have no good thing apart from you, Lord. So I give you praise, honor, glory, and thanksgiving. You're everything. 